This is Sports in the 90s with your hosts, Dave Smith and Carlos Vega. I break bread with the Hennessy one. Hello and welcome to the first ever episode of Sports in the 90s, a 90s sports history podcast covering everything in the world of sports from January 1st, 1990 until December 31st, 1999. My name is Dave Smith and with me is my co-host Carlos Vega, who will be bringing you the best stories in sports of the decade of the 1990s. It was truly a landmark decade in the history of professional sports and a decade in popular culture unlike any other. Besides from just telling sports stories, this podcast will delve into the historical significance these events have had on sports and American popular culture over the last two decades. This podcast will be narrative, but it will also be a conversational podcast as well, since it will be with my best friend. The podcast will follow the same structure every episode and it is as follows. I'll be telling a different story every episode. Carlos may know bits and pieces of the story, but we'll be hearing it the way I present it for the first time, along with the listeners, so his reactions will be genuine. Carlos, great to have you here. Thanks, brother. Good to be here, man. We've been talking about this for a hot minute now, and I'm glad to finally see this come to fruition. This is going to be a lot of fun, brother. Me and Dave genuinely love sports, and there was no better time for sports than the 90s, in our opinion, so we're going to... We're going to get into all of it. Yeah, so a little about us. In terms of this podcast, I think we are your typical 90s kids. Growing up during that time, we watched a lot of sports on TV, played a lot of sports one way or the other, and watched a lot of movies. And that's another thing about the podcast. We will be featuring the best sports movies of the 90s. Every time we do an episode about the movies, you'll be getting a double feature. That's two movies, one episode. So on top of being lifelong fans of sports... We're also lifelong fans of the movies. Oh, yeah. Carlos, do you want to tell our listeners where you're broadcasting from? Yeah, I am in Los Angeles, sunny California. It's been a long time since I've been back home, but uh, I am born and raised in just outside of Chicago. Dave and I met initially met freshman year in high school playing volleyball, and we knew of each other, but we didn't really become friends later in high school when I started doing more theater, and I was in choir. And that's how Dave and I really, our friendship took off. Just our love for the arts and love for sports combined with that was just something that really we connected over. And uh, this guy's my brother from another mother. So, so anytime we pick up the phone, it's like we never uh, miss each other. So yeah, it's going to be fun, dude. Yeah, this is great, man. I'm excited to hear what we're talking about today, dude. What do you got for me? Well, today we're going to be talking about Super Bowl Twenty Four, the first big event of the 90s in sports. Yes. Joe Montana versus John Elway. Before we get into that, let's delve into what we're going to be talking about overall, right? Yeah. So like I said, we both grew up around the Chicagoland area in the 90s, which I think is one of the greatest places and times to grow up a sports fan. So yeah, this podcast will have a bit of a Chicago bias. Can you blame us? Naturally. We grew up watching Michael Jordan and the Bulls dominate. Not only that, but we saw Michael Jordan become a global icon within just a few short years. His impact on the game and on professional sports cannot be understated and will not be understated. It's just too important to the overall narrative of the impact that sports have had on popular culture, not just the United States of America, but the globe. 
there's much more than MJ that happened in the 90s, which makes this a great wow. subject matter for a podcast. So yeah, my promise, our promise to you, the listener, is to delve deep into each story while also offering you a perspective of what it was like growing up during these times. Yeah, yeah, that's, I think, important because I think we are of the last generation to remember things before the Internet and before things became so digitized and you could just look things up on your phone. You know, if you want to know the sports, what happened in the score, you had to literally go to the corner and get a newspaper, and put it in the corner. Do they still have newspaper machines? Well, it's funny. The machines are still there, but the newspapers are not because the papers themselves aren't and, even in them. And you could always tell the last day that they did it because it's like, oh, that's from 2016 cover. Okay, so yeah, uh, they yeah, the Sun Times stopped delivering to that stand six years ago. <laughs> yeah, I mean, could you just imagine if Twitter or you know Instagram was around during the '90s Bulls run? Like, I mean, come on, man. Oh man. Uh, those teams, I mean, with Rodman, like all the hijinks. Oh, my goodness. I mean, got into. <laughs> and that's the thing that, you know, they didn't report that stuff in the newspapers back then because oh. there's legendary stories. Oh, like I mean, Rodman party. Yeah, Rodman's two days in Vegas alone is legendary. I mean, Carmen Electra didn't even know the Bulls were playing because. She she didn't have a pocket schedule, or she didn't no. she didn't read the sports page in Vegas. <laughs> yeah, but that you know, I think yeah, the the, the era of, of the '90s was a, a really fun time for especially you know you had a, a bunch of different runs with Stanley Cup teams. The Penguins in the early '90s were really fun. Think about different sports with baseball and the whole steroids thing, and then '98. McGuire. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I mean, come on, man. There's, there's oh, Jose Canseco. I mean, man, there was a ton of stuff that happened in the nineties. OJ. Right. Oh my goodness. Right. Jose Canseco will be talking about in the first season, and OJ will be delving into later. The trial alone will be delving into deeply because there are many sports connections in the trial. Because that was quite a time. the Olympics, the '96 Olympics. That's the that time. That's going to like, be a uh, two-part episode, a special two-part episode. Yes. There's a lot to cover there. A lot. Carrie Strug. Oh, yeah. Man. So many great names. For sure. We'll be featuring stories about Mike Tyson. Yes. Andre Agassi. Nolan Ryan. The sports movies. Space Jam. The Mighty Ducks. Cool Runnings. Jerry Maguire. Rudy. League of Their Own. Just to name a few. Oh, yes. So, yeah. Let's get started with the first big sports event of the 90s, Super Bowl Twenty-Four. The Denver Broncos versus the San Francisco 49ers. Our story begins not with the 49ers, but with another team. On February 25th, 1989, Jerry Jones buys the Dallas Cowboys from H.R. Bum Brights. Carlos, here's a good first trivia question for you. All right. How much money did Jerry Jones buy the Dallas Cowboys for? In my head right now, I'm hearing Jeopardy music, by the way. I, but I'm... Um, yeah, take a stab. I want to say, was it $1 billion at the time? Way, way less. It was way less, right? Way less. Not Probably even by half today's a billion. Is it half a billion? Not even. $100 million? $140 million oh, is how much Jerry Jones Maybe paid not, for yeah. the Dallas Cowboys. Yeah. Like a nice even. And how number. much are they? <laughs> how much are the Cowboys? But now, yeah, now they're worth. How much billions. are they worth now? Well, uh, according to Forbes, as of August 2021, the Dallas Cowboys are worth 6.5 billion. With a B. Jerry's first act as owner 
He fires Tom Landry. Get out of here. The Tom Landry. You and your fedora. <laughs> Get the head step. coach of the Cowboys since 1960. The only head coach the Cowboys have ever had. I mean, that's a ballsy move at the time. Are you kidding? It really was. Jerry didn't make a good first impression of the Cowboys fans. And as Landry's replacement, Jerry hired his college roommate at Arkansas, Jimmy Johnson. World's greatest hair. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, dude, that, that hair's untouchable. A successful college coach who won a national championship with the University of Miami in 1987. Exactly, in 1989, yeah. there was Jerry's uh, making moves. A change of jump, tide. Man. Yes, a change of tide in the NFL on several different fronts. On top of Cowboys having a new owner... Commissioner Pete Rozelle announced his retirement. Pete Rozelle was commissioner since 1960 and was an instrumental part in the AFL-NFL merger, who even back in the late 60s would have a clear vision of what the NFL would evolve into. The current structure of the NFL, 32 teams, 8 divisions of 4 teams, was his vision. Yeah. Very cool, uh, right? Seemed to have lasted for a, a very long time you know yeah. like that structure really works for sports yeah. so that was his vision yeah. all along yeah i mean you know i don't know i mean it seems to have stuck most teams haven't really moved divisions right since no they started doing since, that. since it's been that way i mean it's pretty much been the standards and in april pete roselle would announce the first overall pick in the 1989 nfl draft can you guess who it is a big one. Wait, what was the uh, the first pick, the first pick in, in the nineteen eighty nine NFL draft? The Dallas Cowboys select Troy Aikman, quarterback. Yeah, Troy Aikman man, from dude. UCLA. That would prove well throughout the decade. Oh yeah. The draft also produced a couple more stars to the scene. With the third pick, the Detroit Lions select Barry Sanders, running back from Oklahoma. Unfortunately, never reached the Super Bowl and retired before he was able to pass Walter Payton. These kids these days, I don't think understand how good Barry Sanders was. I don't know if there's like enough videos uh, running around Instagram, but please, kids, look up Barry Sanders' highlights because the guy just made people look ridiculous on the football field. Like Tyreek Hill right now. Like, you know, think about somebody uh, running back doing that to people. It's unbelievable. The way he can stop on a dime and change directions, and it was just so much fun to watch, even if he was playing against your team. No, he, he did a lot. The Bears. Oh my God. Bears. Bears. Oh, oof, yeah, Bears are brutal in the nineties. Yeah. Oof, hey yeah. man, we had Neil Anderson. <laughs> but the fifth pick is a guy who will be getting his own episode later on. The Atlanta Falcons selected Deion Sanders, a cornerback from Florida State, also known as Primetime. Where was Primetime at when he found out he got drafted? Uh, he was playing. He was at his agent's house in Winnetka, Illinois, a wealthy suburb just north of Chicago. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, Deion knew what he was doing from the start. <laughs> <laughs> And about that flash. Yeah, full interview. Uh, yeah, those, like those are awesome to watch. Yeah, too, man. those those old prime time videos. Oh yeah, and I was watching ESPN coverage of the draft, and <laughs> they were live from his house right at right at his agent's house right after he got drafted. Sunglasses on, and everything. <laughs> Sunglasses on. He had his baby nephew wearing a little prime time jersey. That's great. One, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so on October 12, 1989, the Dallas Cowboys trade star running back Herschel Walker to the Minnesota Vikings for five players and six draft picks. 
one of those picks being Emmett Smith, who would go on to become the NFL's all-time leading rusher. Five days after that, all eyes were on San Francisco. An earthquake hit the Bay Area, registering a 6.9 on the Richter scale, causing billions in damage, injuring thousands, and claiming the lives of 63 people. It happened about 30 minutes before the start of Game 3 of the MLB World Series between the San Francisco Giants and the Oakland A's. It was the first major earthquake in the United States to be broadcast on live television. Since the 49ers also played their home games at Candlestick Park where the Giants play, the 49ers had to play their next home game at Stanford University. Despite disaster on the home front, the 49ers were able to go back to Candlestick Park to play their remaining home games and would finish the regular season with a league-best 14-2. Expectations were high for the defending Super Bowl champion 49ers, but expectations were also unclear for the fact that legendary 49ers head coach Bill Walsh had retired. His replacement was George Seifert, the defensive coordinator and San Francisco native who was in his first year as a head coach. But Seifert didn't need to change much because it didn't need changing. Bill Walsh is the architect of the West Coast offense, which involves a pass-heavy offense used in a very strategic manner. The Broncos, on the other hand, were the most dominant defensive team, allowing the fewest points in the league and recording an AFC best 11-5. Under head coach Dan Reeves, the Broncos had beaten the 49ers in all three of their regular season games. Dang. Yeah, I didn't know so, that. I mean, yeah. Broncos quarterback John Elway had taken the Broncos to Super Bowl 21 and 22, but lost both times. Joe Montana, on the other hand, had won three Super Bowls. Super Bowl 16 and 19, where he was named the game's MVP, and the previous Super Bowl, Super Bowl 23. Joe Montana, nicknamed Joe Cool for his easygoing attitude and his ability to perform in big game situations, solidified his legacy by leading a 92-yard drive to win Super Bowl 23. Okay, so here's a great example of Joe Cool, right? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Great example of Joe's humor and leadership. At the 8-yard line, with a little over 3 minutes left, the 49ers are down 16-13 to and need 92 yards to go to win the game. One of the most tense situations imaginable in football. When Joe Montana spots a celebrity in the stands, can you guess the celebrity that he points out to his teammates? We're talking, he's in the huddle. The 49ers are at the 8-yard line. They have to score a touchdown to win the Super Bowl. Uh, is it like a supermodel? Or no, it is okay. not a big, lovable guy that everybody loved back in 1990. Star of screen, comedies galore, big guy, very lovable. Jim Belushi, John, John Candy, Candy? <laughs> John no way. Candy. Yeah. Joe says, Yeah, so they're in the huddle. Joe says to the guys in the huddle, Hey, isn't that John Candy? And it turns out it was John Candy. That was Joe Montana. He had a way of calming guys down with a sense of humor and grace under pressure. Yeah, the 49ers would go on to score, winning the game 20-16. to Now, Bill Walsh, who had retired as head coach of the 49ers, became a TV color man for NBC. Walsh had this to say years later. The 49ers had the same identical team as the year before, but they were a year older and they were just at their very best. That team to me, along with the 84 team, were two of the four or five greatest teams of all time. 
Bill Walsh was yeah. right about that team, I would say. I mean, who better to speak about it, right? Yeah. I think we're – I was a little too young to remember that Super Bowl, honestly. I, I, I don't really yeah, remember uh, that one. But I this one I don't story. specifically recall. Yeah. yeah. It was game. This Super Bowl. Yeah. yeah, we were just a little too for young. Sure. The next one I do, 25. But that was – That one know, I, I for, for sure do. For all purposes, the game that really made Joe Montana haters finally believe, like, yeah. That's, that's man, you know, a lot like what Tom Brady goes through. I'm sure he won that, that Super Bowl of Tampa. There's no question. There's Granted. no question about it. Yeah. Super Bowl 24 would solidify Joe Montana as one of the greatest quarterbacks of all sure. time up until that point. Be able to get into Brady at some point because that. Absolutely. Um, in an episode called Tom Brady, the college years. <laughs> nice. Yes, absolutely, absolutely. He had a tough struggle in college, man. He was being booted. That's why he has that huge chip on his shoulder. And that was a they parallel with Joe Montana. College. Joe Montana wasn't always the starter, so there's a lot of parallels there between totally. Montana and Brady. So the 49ers were 12-point favorites going into the game with a total points over-under of 48. Super Bowl twenty four took place on January 28, 1990. The game was broadcast in the United States by CBS, which featured the broadcast team of Pat Summerall and John Madden covering their fourth Super Bowl together. They previously covered Super Bowls 16, 18, and 21. Brent Musburger hosted all the pregame, halftime, and postgame coverage as part of CBS's The Super Bowl Today show with help from his NFL Today co-host, Irv Cross, Dick Butkus, Will McDonough, along with the game analyst Terry Bradshaw, Ken Stabler, Dan Fouts, and at the time, the coach of the Chicago Bears, that coach. Mike Ditka, who picked the Broncos to win. <laughs> Everyone else picked the 49ers. Always going to get but... the grade. <laughs> <laughs> he really does. The game was simulcast in Canada on CTV. In Mexico on Imevision? Canal 13? Imevision. The game later aired in the United Kingdom on Channel 4, a public television network. So you had three foreign countries that aired the Super Bowl, at least to Rule 24. As the 90s progressed and the NFL became more popular worldwide, more and more countries started broadcasting the Super Bowl and has grown into more than 100 countries it, now airing the game. At, at least, least 100, right? It's at least 100. That's Closer what I mean. It's like, it's at least, I looked up. The last Super Bowl, uh, I was like, oh, wow, yeah. okay, it's at least 100. It was like less than half a dozen for Super Bowl 24, but as the 90s progressed, you're going to see, notice a lot more countries yeah. carrying the Super Bowl oh, every wow. year. Being in New Orleans, the pregame show was a salute to Mardi Gras and featured the lead singer of Blood, Sweat, and Tears, David Clayton Thomas. Now, Carlos, can you tell me who sang the national anthem? Uh... New Orleans native. I'll give you a couple okay. hints. I'll okay. give you a couple hints. Okay. New Orleans native, over time, has released nine studio albums with his brothers. And here's a good hint. I don't know much, but I know I love you. That may be all I need to know. I don't know much, but I know I love you. Is that Michael Bolton? No. Aaron Neville. Oh, I'm like, Aaron what? Neville. Ah! <laughs> ah! I would sing it. I was going to say like Ron Isley, but I was like. <laughs> Ron Isley would be good. I would say I would love to see a rendition of Ron Isley doing the National Anthem. The coin toss was done by Willie Wood, 
a safety for the Green Bay Packers from 1960 to 1971, who was then just elected to the Pro Football Hall of Fame. The 49ers called tails, but it landed on heads, and the Broncos decided to receive. That would turn out to be one of only a few high points of the game for the Broncos, and it would not get much better for them. The first possession, they would go three and out. The 49ers, however, scored on their first drive with a 20-yard touchdown pass from Joe Montana to Jerry Rice. The Broncos would answer back in the first by kicking a 42-yard field goal, making it 7-3. On the next drive, Roger Craig of the San Francisco 49ers broke a then-Super Bowl career record with 17 receptions. I need to point out that Roger Craig is a running back. This is an example of the West Coast offense in motion and working well. The 49ers were one of the first teams to utilize the running back as a receiver, and Roger Craig played a big part in making the West Coast offense successful in the 1980s. Yeah, he was a huge part of that offense. Yeah, I mean, him and Tom Rathman were, I think, the, one of the last pure fullbacks remember in the game. Like you don't... Tech Mobile, Roger, right? and Roger Craig. <laughs> huge. Yeah, he was versatile. The 49ers would score again in the first with a seven-yard touchdown pass from Montana to Brent Jones. The only mistake by the 49ers this game was a missed extra point, thus making the score at the end of the first quarter 13-3. The second quarter, the 49ers did not slow down at all. After the Broncos went three and out after the previous kickoff, the 49ers advanced 69 yards in 14 plays to score on a one-yard run by Tom Rathman. Another running back, as was mentioned, who on that drive caught three passes yeah, for 39 like yards. Football scoring a touchdown. 69 yards. <laughs> Love that. With 34 seconds left in the half, Joe Montana connected again to Jerry Rice with a 38-yard pass. The score at the half, 27-3. to It's got to be demoralizing to get all the way to Super Bowl and just get stopped out by I mean, right. I'm sure it's great now being the game to, to get there, but then, you know, it's got to be a tough... You want to win. Yeah. <laughs> you know? I mean, tell that to Tom Brady, though, you know what I mean? Yeah. Like, <laughs> the halftime show was a salute to New Orleans and the 40th anniversary of the Peanuts comic strip featuring Charlie Brown and friends in mascot costumes along with an animated Woodstock on screen. What? Yeah. Really? Yeah, 40th anniversary of Charlie Brown, friends, and Woodstock was animated on screen combined with... Huh. Yeah. For music, you had fiddle player Doug Kershaw, singer Irma Thomas, and clarinetist Pete Fountain, also known as Mr. New Orleans. The musicians were backed by three college marching bands, Southern University, University of Louisiana at Lafayette, and Nichols State. Now, the finale featured a float in the shape of a riverboat. It was so big that one of the goalposts had to be moved. What? <laughs> this is part of the after they had to remove a goalpost? But they had to move the goalpost out where it was at and just move it slightly so you can get so you this can have a giant, giant float. float. Um, they got a giant float in the shape of a riverboat for the giant finale of the show. I gotta look this up, Dave. This is... I can't believe I don't remember any of this. I don't. Uh, no. And you wonder why last Super Bowl halftime show had just that one truck? Yeah, because they, they wouldn't be able to, they would have to move everything if they have a bigger setup. Because I don't think that ever happened again. I mean, that just seems like a lot of work for a halftime show. <laughs> you know? Like, why? 
or what? Nowadays, dude, I, eventually we're going to have Super Bowl halftime shows that are in the metaverse or whatever. And, <laughs> oh, yeah. you know. And virtual reality. So it's like you're actually on the field watching the show. Whoa. What a time to be alive, Dave. Whew. Back to the 90s. So, yeah, the goalposts had to move. So, before we go into the second half, I thought this would be a good time to talk about the commercials of Super Bowl 24. Oh, sure. Yeah, the, let's do that. I bet the commercials were great. The cost of a 30-second spot. Oh, wait, can I guess? You sure can. Uh, nineteen cost of a Super Bowl spot? 30 seconds. 30-second spot. spot. A half a million? Close. 700,000. So the commercials over the years have become just as big as the game itself. I mean, there's a lot of people every year who only watch the Super Bowl for the commercials. Yeah. 100 million people are watching the big game, so it's the Super Bowl for the advertising industry as well. Looking back, Super Bowl commercials give you a great snapshot at popular culture in America that year. <laughs> yeah, they did. So as usual, there were a lot of ads for Coke and Pepsi, first one being an ad for Pepsi, but also featuring Coke. In this commercial, they accidentally send the boring old Coca-Cola to the frat house while the delivery men sent Pepsi to the old folks' home. The Pepsi made a huge change in the old people who were dancing to rap music because <laughs> Pepsi is the choice of a new generation. It's <laughs> uh, great. I yeah, that's a great one. Coca-Cola decided to stick with its classic image and recreate the old classic commercial song, I'd Like to Buy the World of Coke, that premiered in 1971. It was the same people in the original commercial at the same spot, but this time they were with their children. Wow. Wholesome content right there. Wholesome. Wholesome. Classic. Charles Barkley in a polo outfit for Right Guard Sports Stick. In a series of commercials he would do for years with the tagline, Right Guard Sports Stick. Anything less would be uncivilized. Those are classic. We had American Express, features actor Paul Newman in a scooter racing a race car. Is that kind of an homage to this game? Well, okay, so the race car craps out and he wins. So Paul Newman is not only an Oscar-winning actor and a salad-dressing entrepreneur. Newman's own? Yeah, that's great stuff. And it goes yeah, to charity. I... 100% of profits go to charity. But he was also a professional race car driver since 1972. And in 1995, at the age of 70, Newman became the oldest driver to be part of a winning team in a major sanctioned race, winning his class at the 24 Hours at that's Daytona. That's an awesome achievement, dude. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like I said, yeah, he just he was yeah, raised. Well, there's help, there's hope. A public service announcement for a drug addiction hotline: one eight hundred six six two H E L P. A number that still works yeah. today. So, in all seriousness, if you or anyone you know deals with addiction, you can call this number: one eight hundred six six two help H E L P to find resources. Now, could it be argued the reason? The NFL showed these public service announcements is that there was a big controversy in the NFL during the 1989 season with rumors of widespread drug use throughout the league. Yeah, yeah, that uh, sounds you know, about right. I mean, that was, you know, yeah. that guy's coming into the league. At the, yeah, I mean, it's the 80s we're talking a lot of... That was kind know, of the heyday of, of it. Uh, a lot of coke going around and... Well, just in steroids were crazy yeah. at the time, dude. It was, mm -hmm. it was very prevalent in football yeah. at the time. Oh, for sure. Yeah, definitely. This was also a time when the war on drugs was still at its height. Yeah. Um, 
Yeah. Yeah. George H.W. Bush, Ronald Reagan's vice president, continued the war on drugs when he became president a little over a year prior to Super Bowl XXIV. President Bush was even in a commercial giving a presidential commendation to retiring NFL commissioner Pete Rozelle. President Bush spoke specifically of the NFL's efforts to bring awareness of the issues of illegal drugs. Now you're thinking, hey, doesn't the Super Bowl feature ads of drugs that are illegal? They sure do. Introducing new Co-Advil. Featuring boxer Sugar Ray Leonard, Co-Advil is ibuprofen and a cold medicine in one. What? Dude, what? (laughs) Co-Advil? Co-Advil. That is insane. Decongestant and ibuprofen in one. Oh my god, just kill two birds with one stone, folks. Yeah. Don't yeah, don't don't check the ingredients. It's fine. Trust us. <laughs> that didn't last long. Oh wow. <laughs> and Sugar Ray Leonard was endorses uh, He was. He was. He was in a lot of things. <laughs> yeah, I mean uh that's good though. I mean I never right? I don't remember that one. <laughs> yeah, I'm not sure how long that lasted for. <laughs> Yeah, well, I, I was going to say, it was that. just like prior to the Advils getting spiked, because that happened in, in Chicago, right, or, around that time in the oh, late 80s. Oh, yeah, that be was before. That, right? So, yeah. But, yeah, back in the day, because it was literally some guy going into a store, opening the caps and putting cyanide in these Advils, which there is ever a silver lining to a story like that. It's the companies pulled them off the shelves, and then that completely changed the way that things are bottled when it comes to Right. Over-the-counter medicine. Right? Exactly. So. Next, we have the game within the game. Bud Bowl 2. Bud Bowl. Oh, yeah. Bud Bowl was a set of commercials throughout the game that featured beer bottles as football players. Budweiser won Bud Bowl 1, 27-24, which aired the previous Super Bowl. Budweiser won Again, on a last-second fumble in the snow. A last-second fumble in the snow. This is one of those commercials I wish they would bring back. That would be a nice retro. It really would. It would be so cool. It really would. Bud Light and Budweiser broadcast a dozen commercials anyway, so... Yeah, I mean, Americans still love their Budweiser and Bud Light. Yeah, each quarter was its own commercial. So it was there was two commercials yeah. leading up to the Bud Bowl, and then each quarter of the game was its own commercial. It was like six commercial series, it's like a mini series of commercials. Yeah, they need to, they need to bring those mini series commercials. It'd be so much fun. Yeah. So McDonald's had a great promotion. Okay. If the 49ers won, the BLT would be a buck oh nine. Isn't that what freedom cost? A buck oh nine. <laughs> I think so. I think that's how much it costs. <laughs> and if the Broncos won, the quarter pounder with cheese would be ninety nine cents. Wow! Hey, you know, wow. you know what they call a quarter pounder with cheese in Paris? <laughs> no. What do they call it? They call it Royale with cheese. Royale with cheese. <laughs> So we got uh, the car commercials. We had the Subaru Legacy, the Toyota Celica, a Pontiac Grand Prix ad with Patrick Stewart doing narration. Ooh, I think I learned uh, driver's ed in the Pontiac Grand Prix GT. Oh, you guys get you those got new lucky. I had the Chevy Dude, Caprice had the, station wagon. Get, oh, man. That thing was huge. Yeah. yeah. 
Oh my yeah. goodness. Ugh. That was the security guy's uh, car. That's what you learned on. I got one of the new GTs Grand Prix. Yeah, I was jealous, you guys. Yeah. I lucked out, <laughs> well, dude. Well, my mentality was I'm getting the Monte Carlo, so I might as well practice on a big On a big vehicle. Boat. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> one boat yeah. to another. Right? <laughs> Oh, the car, the car. So the car that the Super Bowl 24 MVP is awarded a car. Ooh. Uh, who was, well, did they get a Corvette back then? Or a truck? <laughs> they got like a Ford truck? No, it was a two-door car. It's a Buick. A Buick? What kind of cars? Two-door sedans? <laughs> a Buick Riata. Riata? R-I-A-T-T-A? That is correct. Oh, man. Wow. So wait, and so Joe Montana won a, a Buick Joe Riata? Montana won a Buick Riata, which wow. he may or may not still have. Probably doesn't. Who knows? So just like any other Super Bowl, the ads featured a lot of celebrities. Fred Savage of the Wonder Years TV show was writing a love letter to a crush and wrote great prose inspired by the great taste of Pepsi. Michael J. Fox... At the opera, lip-syncing, trying to get a Diet Pepsi. He also had Elton John and Paul Abdul do a duet for Diet Coke. Nice. Was that, uh, like, did it have some sort of It was of a nice little number, like... little pop, yeah, a little pop, you know, Elton John style. You could tell he probably composed it yeah. and did a little and then, ditty and, and banged it on the piano. For, like... And then it's like, here's what I got. They're like, we love it, Elton. And Paul's yeah, dancing. Yeah, and, you know, and Elton John's, yeah, he's singing, and she's yeah, singing yeah. back, and it's a nice little duet. You know, oh, typical. Oh, Paul Good stuff, man. Yeah. So Joe Montana is in a commercial. Of course. Go. Joe Cool. Challenging celebrities to a blind taste test. Now, this is kind of one of those meta events that was scenarioed in Jerry Maguire. This is the goal of every sports agent, for their client to be in a Super Bowl commercial broadcast during a game in which they are winning. <laughs> yeah. I'm pretty sure only Peyton Manning and Tom Brady have accomplished something like yes, that. Yes, they are real-life movie stars. Peyton Manning, I'm not specifically sure, but I'm pretty sure it was during Super Bowl 41 that he was in an ad. Most likely. And then yeah. they, you know, they had a, With Tom Brady, he was in a commercial for Tattoo. For a movie he was in, yeah. playing himself. Yeah. I think uh, LeBron as well was in the playoffs at like before Space Jam was about to come out. Uh, you know. Yeah, I, I could definitely they, see they that definitely being, in, being in the NBA Finals. Yeah, being in a commercial NBA Finals. Oh yeah, Michael, uh, countless games. So, and speaking of Peyton Manning, no, he's not in a commercial in Super Bowl Twenty Four. He was thirteen at the time, but there was a nationwide commercial. Ah. And yes, they had the same jingle yeah. back then. Oh, yeah. Classic. yeah. Kind of a light jazz version sung by a woman. Sure. It's nice. Those of us who are old enough to remember Jay Leno, before he was the host of The Tonight Show, was doing ads for Doritos. Hey, you heard about this? Hey. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That's a good impression, man. <laughs> Not bad. <laughs> I wasn't sure if I was going to do it. I was like, all right, all right. <laughs> hey, what about this? Oh, it's <laughs> yeah, he was in like a series of oh, yeah, yeah, like, three or four. The Super Bowl being on CBS, they also showed TV spots for their upcoming sports events, such as the Daytona 500 and the NBA All-Star Game. The tagline for the All-Star Game, 
the greatest show above Earth. Gravity doesn't stand a chance. <laughs> well, CBS didn't stand a chance against NBC back then because that would be the last NBA All-Star game CBS would ever broadcast. <laughs> well, I mean, they weren't willing to pay the money, let's be honest. CBS was like, this is as they much of we're going to pay for this sporting event. They're like, and nah. uh, NBA was like, nah, see ya. And, and then CBS decided to go all with in college, college basketball. Yeah. It's like, yeah, March Madness. Yeah. We'll, yeah, yeah we'll keep we're that. We're going to get into some NCAA oh. and sports in the nineties podcast, aren't we? Oh yeah. In season one specifically, we're going to be talking about UNLV, University of Nevada, Las Vegas, Jerry yeah. Tarkanian and the boys. That's when I started liking basketball. So that game was watching that tournament. Several weeks after the Super Bowl, a management change at CBS resulted in the firing of Brent Musburger. His last event for the network was the call of the 1990 NCAA men's college basketball game. Irv Gross was taken off the studio team and became an analyst instead, serving that role for two years with Tim Ryan. Dick Butkus returned to acting, where uh, he starred in a few episodes of MacGyver, actually. If you knew Did he that. really? He did as actually a it, yeah as a character like a um, he's recurring. I mean only like three or four episodes, but still, you know, most people who appeared on MacGyver were only in one-off episodes. But he actually had his own character really? for a I'm few. Yeah, <laughs> true. Like he yeah he was a he was a convict and he redeemed himself and he gets back in touch with his daughter. It's, oh, oh, it's whoa, a whoa, great whoa. spoilers here, Dave. Come on, <laughs> what are you doing? I'm gonna watch this. Come on. Yeah, folks. Thirty years ago, up. man. <laughs> <laughs> no, right? You ever meet people who are like, they get so offended. Like, whoa, 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 whoa! You can't tell me the ending of this you know. predictable sitcom that you easily could have saw coming yeah, in the first five whatever. minutes. <laughs> it's like, uh, it's been out for a long time, buddy. Oh, you didn't know Bruce Willis was a ghost. <laughs> like, sorry. <laughs> Um, remember Hang Time? Oh hang time. man, did I love these on Hang Time, dude? Anthony Anderson back in the day. That's right. That's that's how he got his big break, really. I, I mean, that's, think. that was his first big role. Dude, that was, I believe man, so. Because then Reggie Theus was the coach, right? I and mean, Theus ended up being the coach. After yeah, Buckets, that's right. Right. Yep. And then yeah, dude. And then they were always just like dominating. They somehow find found a way to pull it off, like victory after. I mean, they were it was a solid team. True, man. Yeah, so CBS went to a two-man studio team for 1990 with Greg Gumbel, who joined CBS from ESPN the prior year. Back to the game. The 49ers are up 27-3. to Everything is going right for the 49ers. Everything is going wrong for the Broncos. That would continue to be the case. In the first 16 minutes and 13 seconds of the second half, the 49ers scored four more touchdowns. Yikes. Yeah. The third quarter saw the most scoring from both teams. 49ers linebacker Michael Walter intercepted a pass from John Elway, which resulted in Joe Montana throwing a third touchdown to Jerry Rice, this one for 28 yards. Then on the next drive, the Broncos were intercepted again, this time by Chet Brooks. Two plays later, Montana fooled defensive back Steve Atwater with a pump fake in Rice's direction and then threw a 35-yard touchdown pass to John Taylor, making the score 41-3. to 
San Francisco has scored three touchdowns in less than six minutes. Like, how many interceptions did Elway have? Is this one of his most, like, pathetic performances in a playoff game ever? It really is. And John Madden points out, it's like, this is the worst football this team has ever played and it frustrates them you know i mean not to take anything away from john elway because he ended up getting like you know two titles and oh sure he's one of the great all-time clutch quarterbacks ever but he went and he just he ran into some juggernaut teams too and he wasn't feeling well either during super bowl 24 that was something that they didn't talk about sure that way he wasn't feeling good all week so that definitely played a factor into it you know it's so i mean and the game was played in new orleans Right. He was playing New Orleans. Yeah, so yeah, like mean, 49ers were defending champs. Plus, 49ers, on top of having the West Coast offense, had a really good defense, too. <laughs> yeah, I mean, like, let's not forget how good the Niners were. You know, the Niners right. really came out and dominated this game from the start. For sure. Game. So, but yeah. Elway ran into some, some teams. Denver's only touchdown came on a three-yard run from John Elway. So the Broncos are only down 41-10 to 10 at this point. In the fourth quarter, the 49ers continued to dominate. San Francisco responded to Denver's touchdown by scoring on an 11-play, 75-yard drive that took 6.56 off the clock. That's a long drive. And ending with a three, it really is, and ending with a three-yard run by Tom Rathbun. 48-10 is the score. On the next drive, the 49ers force a fumble after Don Griffin sacked John Elway. Defensive end Danny Stubbs recovered, and the 49ers ended up on the Denver one-yard line. Roger Craig scored on a one-yard run, making the score 55-10. This game is a score-gami. You know what a score-gami is, Carlo? No, but I have a feeling it has something to do with like how the numbers tie into each other. Right. So hmm. it means that this is the only NFL game in history with the exact score of 55 to 10. Huh. <laughs> it's a go. weird one, Stata. Yeah. Yeah. That After that, the 49ers guy. pulled Joe Montana and put in Steve Young. Did, yeah. They, how many plays? We got a Steve few. Play? I mean, they pretty much just ran the ball most of the time. We got a couple passing plays in. They were out there just running the clock down. And the Broncos pulled John Elway. And put in Gary Kubiak. Coach Gary Kubiak. Yeah. You're watching all these old videos. You're like, yeah. And Matt Millen being on the San Francisco 49ers. You're like, oh, yeah. Sure. So the sideline was all smiles for the 49ers. When the game was over, Huey Lewis was waiting for the 49ers in the locker room to celebrate. Was the news there? You like Huey Lewis and the news? The early work was a little too new wave for my tastes. But when sports came out in 83, I think they really came into their own, commercially and artistically. The whole album has a clear, crisp sound and a new sheen of consummate professionalism that really gives the songs a big boost. He's been compared to Elvis Costello, but I think Huey has a far more bitter, cynical sense of humor. In 87, Huey released Four, their most accomplished album. I think their undisputed masterpiece is Hip to Be Square, a song so catchy most people probably don't listen to the lyrics, but they should, because it's not just about the pleasures of conformity and the importance of trends, it's also a personal statement about the band itself. Why am I going into length about Huey Lewis? If you've ever seen American Psycho, you know what I'm talking about. If you haven't seen it and you're a Christian Bale fan, it's a must watch. I mentioned Huey Lewis in the news and specifically Hip to be Square, 
because Joe Montana and some of the 49ers sang in the song Hip to be Square. Did, Did you they know really? That? <laughs> nice. That is hilarious. I did not know that. So the part where they go here, there, and everywhere, mm-hmm. that is Joe Montana, Dwight Clark, Ronnie Lott, and Ricky Ellison. That's singing. hilarious. That is great. Ah. If one thing remains constant in American popular culture is that rock stars want to be athletes and athletes want to be rock stars. Huey Lewis is a Bay Area guy, big 49ers fan. Huey Lewis and the News have sang the national anthem at several 49ers games. For winning Super Bowl 24, the players on the 49ers each received. You want to take a guess with a bonus? Each player got? Uh, for winning the Super Bowl? Win? 250K? Not quite. 36,000. Oh, 36,000. I think it's probably 250K now. That's but 36K. Huh? 36K for winning Super Bowl 24, each player on the 49ers. Hmm. Joe Montana was named MVP, and as we mentioned earlier, was awarded a 1990 Buick Riata. So that wraps up Super Bowl 24. Huh. Great. That's a great culmination. Well done, sir. Right? Thank you. Thank you. Now, before we go, I'd like to introduce a segment we call In the World That Week. In world news, on January 25th, 1990, Prime Minister of Pakistan, Benazir Bhutto, gives birth to a girl becoming the first modern head of office to bear a child while in office. Okay. Uh, January 31st, the first McDonald's in Moscow opens after construction begins months earlier on May 3rd, 1989. <laughs> Your sixth birthday is when the Moscow McDonald's started being built. Ah. Ah. Good to know. Good to know. Eight months after the Moscow McDonald's opens, the first McDonald's in mainland China opens in Shenzhen. In the U.S., President George H.W. Bush gives his first State of the Union address. The number one fiction book on the New York Times bestseller list. You want to take a guess at the author? Fiction? Uh, take a wild guess. Steve, first one. Stephen King? I don't know. Uh, women. Think of a women author. First one that pops Steve in your head. Danielle Steele. <laughs> Daddy by Danielle Steele. <sighs> Oh, okay, okay. Daniel I think you're going to be getting... 90s, a, you're, 90s author, of course. Right, nice you're going to be getting that a lot throughout the course of this podcast. He's going to be having a lot of bestsellers throughout the 90s. Yeah, she just wrote all those romance novels, right? That's what That was her thing? Yeah, that was her thing. Yeah, and she blew up. She was huge. Yeah, I read more Stephen King. Okay, all right, fair enough. Uh, let's see, uh, number one movie at the box office that week? You want to take a guess? 1990? Uh, it be a hit. It would go on to win Best Picture. Driving Miss Daisy, starring Morgan Freeman and Jessica Tandy. 5.7 million opening weekend. The number one song in the U.S.? You mentioned him before, instead of Aaron Neville. It's funny that you guessed him first. Michael Bolton, How Am I Supposed to Live Without You? Wow. With a monstrous win... Joe Montana gets his fourth Super Bowl victory, and the 49ers cement their legacy as team of the 1980s. The 49ers had all the pieces to create a dynasty. Owner Eddie DiPartolo spared no expense when it came to player accommodations. Bill Walsh designed the innovative West Coast offense that was head and shoulders above what any other offense was doing in the 80s. When Walsh retired, 
the team was in good hands with George Seifert, who continued Walsh's success. And you had Joe Montana, the right guy to lead the team on and off the field. A heady quarterback, as John Madden would describe him. Now here's a guy who knew every play inside and out, but also knew when to improvise at exactly the right moment. Nicknamed Joe Cool for his grace under pressure and easygoing attitude, Montana was one of the guys, a prankster, a guy who would go out for beers with his teammates. Everybody loved playing with him, and the results speak for themselves. This would be the last Super Bowl for Joe Montana, but not the last for the 49ers in this decade. Steve Young, who had been a backup quarterback for Joe Montana, would soon be finding himself as Joe's replacement, but yeah, not without but... some quarterback controversy. But more on that when we cover Steve Young and the 49ers in Season 5 when we cover Super Bowl Twenty Nine. Oh, yeah. yeah. Yeah, it's a little ways down the road. You could get right. some Super Bowls to go, folks, but uh, yeah. it's going to get wild. The next one's a good one. That's the, that's the one I really remember. Uh, next one, yes, yeah, Super Bowl Twenty Five, Whitney and Wide Right. Oh yeah, it's gonna be a lot of fun, man, doing all these reminiscing, but at the same time, uh, giving you a little comedy along the way and just giving you a little perspective of what it was like. Thank yeah, you, uh, I mean, this is great. although we we both admitted we didn't remember this one much. It's nice to be able to uh, talk about some of these old things and thanks for playing along. Yeah, this is great. Well, that about wraps it up for our first episode of Sports in the Nineties. Thank you so much for listening. We hope you've enjoyed listening to this episode as much as we've enjoyed making it. We have a lot of programming planned, so stay tuned for more as we work our way through the 90s. Our next episode, we will be talking about boxing's most famous fighter, Mike Tyson. Oh, that day. This is going to be fun. I cannot wait for this episode. Baddest man on the planet. We'll be talking about his upbringing and early career of knockouts, as well as the first man ever to defeat him in a professional fight, Buster Douglas. So we'll be talking about Buster Douglas as well. I'm sure there's many listeners who, like Carlos and I, occasionally enjoy an adult beverage or two when we watch the game. But here at Sports in the 90s, we're reminding you to think when you drink. Carlos and I are also very conscious of the environment so we would also like to remind you, whenever possible, to reduce, reuse, recycle. Thank you, and thank you for tuning in to the pilot episode of Sports in the 90s.